From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Maria Koop. This is Podcast in Place, a series about life in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. The U.S. National Emergency Response to COVID-19 officially ended on April 10, 2023. A separate national health emergency related to the virus is set to expire on May 11th. So with the pandemic coming to a close, we've decided to wind down this podcast series. We have just a few stories left to share before we go. In December of 2020, we spoke with Danny Midland, an ER doctor at Providence Medical Center. Over Zoom, he shared his experiences working in emergency care while hospitals were adapting to an influx of patients sick with COVID-19. On April 4th of this year, Dr. Midland stepped into the Atme studio and sat down with producer Kendrick Whiteman to give an update on what working in the emergency room at Providence is like now. He reflects on the early days of the pandemic, the new normal of day-to-day operations at the hospital, the long-term psychological effects of COVID, and much more. Throughout the pandemic, we heard a lot about um, how elective surgeries and procedures were put on hold due to the influx of patients with COVID-19. And now that we're at a point where the pandemic is more or less over, I'm assuming that those type of procedures are back to normal. Uh, yes and no. And I think, yeah, this is that's an aptly timed question because we are switching from uh, pandemic to endemic, I think, this week. Um, is the official like the state of emergency is ending and or the the public health emergency rather is ending um so i would say there have been a lot of efforts to get back to normal um i don't think we're there yet and there there are a couple of reasons for that um you know i mean first of all there was just such a backlog um because it wasn't just elective i mean it was anything non-emergent non-urgent um we were were delaying for a long time um, and there's sort of, uh, in the world of surgeries, they kind of mirrored the larger picture in the world of medicine, um, that a lot of stuff was getting deferred that we would have really been better served by not deferring. And then that kind of had repercussions down the line as things were more severe than they might otherwise have been. Um, so there's that. And then there's just the fact that we are really seeing this incredible level of hospital overcrowding, um, and I don't, I don't generally throw around the word unprecedented, but I think it's probably fair to use in this case um, that just the hospital is running at well over 100% capacity. I mean, we, we are, you know, keeping, we call it boarding patients down in the ER, patients that are admitted to the hospital, but there's no bed for them. And, you know, every patient that comes in for surgery that has to be admitted to the hospital, that's a bed. And so our ability to do that, you know, it, it's sort of the hospital has to find a way to balance um, the patients that need surgery with the patients that are going to show up in the ER with the patients that are going to come from, you know, from other other hospitals in the state and so on. And so um, it's a real balancing act. And that has certainly limited our capacity to, to catch up on that backlog. So the backlog, I think, still exists. I don't have a, a sense of the hard numbers, but certainly I don't think that surgeons have been able to schedule every case that they would like to as promptly as they would like to, unfortunately. And that's that's not just a Providence phenomenon. That's that's you know, statewide and probably nationally. Uh, Yeah, I would imagine. How are day-to-day operations in the hospital? Do they feel like things have gone back to normal? Um, you know, it's that sense of the new normal, right? I I mean, you know, no, before everyone wasn't walking around with masks on all the time. Um, and little by little, you know, the hospitals have, have walked that back a bit and, but yeah, it does feel like it. I mean, we're seeing so much less COVID than we were, You you know, it actually feels like, 
you have the brain space to focus on other stuff. And it's not like every single thing you think about has to be like, well, what if it's COVID? Well, what if they also have COVID? Well, how does this, you know, um, it's not as if, you know, intubating a patient is the sort of panic inducing exercise that it was in the first, you know, weeks and months. Um, so, you know, yeah, it, it, in some ex to some extent, it's back to the old normal. To some extent, it's a new normal, but it does feel more sustainable. I think the uh, personally that exhaustion that I felt, um, you know, a year in, um, eight months in, whatever it might have been, um, has has gotten a lot better. Uh, when do you think things started to get back to normal? Um, I would have to sit here for a long time in boring silence and think about it, but, <laughs> um, but it's been, you know, probably a year if I, you know, just sort of guesstimating that things started to feel, I wouldn't say normal, I would say sustainable. Um, not like we were just sort of putting one foot in front of the other and trying to get through it, but that we were like, okay, you know, we can, we can do this. And again, I mean, there's so much other stuff that we're dealing with in terms of crowding and in terms of people just being sicker than they used to be when they come to the hospital for reasons that I don't, I haven't heard anyone really pin down very well. Um, you know, it, it, there's still adjustment going on, but it, again, it feels like a sustainable process. I don't know. Maybe people are just more aware of being sick now. <laughs> you know, you would think so, but we're, I mean, maybe we're just more aware of people being sick, but our admission rate has gone up. Um, the acuity levels assigned to patients at triage have gone up. Um, so there's an actual like scoring system that we use to say, hey, you got to get in a room right now versus like, eh, you you could be in the waiting room until next Thursday and you'd probably be fine. Um, and more patients are coming in on that first end of the scale. More patients are coming in sick and needing to be admitted to the hospital, um, which is really compounding, of course, that that overcrowding issue. But I, I haven't heard um, like a really obvious or even like a really clear explanation for why exactly it is that people are just sicker than they were five years ago. Um, thinking back to when COVID hospitalizations were first spiking, what did hospitals do to accommodate the increase of uh, COVID patients? Um, a lot of things. I mean, we, you know, the UAA arena, the Alaska Airlines arena was set up to take overflow patients for, I don't even know how long, a year. Um, you know, there were no sporting events going on. And so they, there were beds in there and there were basically, it was to offload the non COVID patients. Um, so if the hospital became totally full of COVID patients, then, um, you know, we would have somewhere to sort of move people to, to create some capacity. And, you know, there were a lot of measures. I mean, their patients were moved all over the state. Um, there, that's hard because the, the measures that we usually can take became unavailable to us, right? We couldn't transfer patients to Seattle because there was no room in Seattle. The hospitals in Seattle were also full. Um, and we really, I may have talked about this last time um, that I spoke with you guys, but I hesitate to say we got lucky. I don't think we got lucky. I think people pulled together. I think people made an incredible effort on the community level. And I know just to take you back, I mean, remember we talked about flattening the curve, right? That was that thing early on where we were like, well, we're going to get some number of patients no matter what. The thing is, we just can't handle all of them at once. And this is why we're asking people to mask. And this is why we're asking people to stay home. And like, that was a big ask, right? That was a really heavy lift that everyone did together. And it worked. I mean, that's the thing that I think that somehow, you know, there's so many stories following one after another that we never came back to the like, hey guys, you did it, right? But like 
Alaska didn't have this incredible number of deaths due to like not having hospital capacity. We didn't run out of ventilators, right? The number of times that we had to make really hard decisions about who could get a limited resource like ventilators, I mean, count on one hand, right? It, I, and I don't know the absolute number, but I think it's, it is legitimately single digit. So that stuff worked. Um, and it really, I mean, it's something that I will personally always be grateful for because I, I am very cognizant of the sacrifices that people made. Yeah, there was a lot of communities like um, being down in New Mexico, for example, like where uh, overflow would become such a large problem and people on an individual level weren't taking in like accountability for like uh, the precautions and like people weren't wearing masks and still going into stores and um, still having large gatherings and whatnot. And I think it did have an impact, but I would say people pulled together and I would say we are getting back to... I guess not a normal, as you would say, but getting back to sustainability, um, a, a new normal. Yeah, I think we're getting away from that feeling that like every public gathering is is like cause for concern, yeah. right? And you know, I I remember sort of the first time I walked into like a very crowd, and I, in fact, it was <laughs> it was shortly after I had COVID. Um, I was um, with some friends, and there we were out of town. Um, we were actually in the lower forty eight, and um, I walked into like a crowded bar full of people and i was like no nah, i can't do this man i'm sorry this is freaking me out <laughs> and i was like you know i had had covid like three weeks prior um i knew i wasn't gonna get it but like my brain was just like no you can't you can't do that get out of here um and that's that's the part that i think personally i has gotten better right i don't i don't feel that anymore um and i you know alaska's different right it's a it's a community um and i'm not going to say that there aren't people that were um probably not taking things as seriously as they could have or not being as careful as they could have. But in the end, I think people really pulled together. And I think people were really cognizant of the fact that like, man, like if, if we get in trouble, we're really in trouble. You know, we don't have, you can't drive to the next state. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, you know, and, and I think people really did that. You know, I think that argument that like, you know, McDonald's serving a billion hamburgers is fine, but that doesn't mean you want them all at once. Right. And so like that, that's the flattening the curve argument. And I think people, that, that resonated. Um, and and I think, like, again, like I said, I, I just really, I carry a, a deep appreciation for that. You, you spoke about how during the pandemic or the height of pandemic, hospitals had to push a lot of people out because, or like have other areas set up for non-COVID patients. Um, having dedicated areas to those COVID patients, mm -hmm. um, are those areas still active? Uh, no, we, we've stood down sort of most of the dedicated areas. I mean, there was a COVID ICU, um, and we just, I mean, there's no volume to support doing that anymore, right? We just don't have the number of COVID patients, let alone very sick COVID patients, um, and due in large part to, to widespread vaccination. We just, people aren't coming in and dying of COVID, right? I mean, again, I mean, count on one hand now, um, you know, we had a, we closed off a big chunk of our ER and we had put up temporary walls and you would be the COVID doc that day. And you would go into this walled off area and it'd be you and I think two nurses sitting back there. Um, and that was just what you were doing. You were just in an N95 all day. Um, and, you know, assuming you were sort of coded head to toe in COVID. And, it, you know, there's sort of this like very distilled version of what everyone was feeling right because everyone was kind of like oh man it's everywhere um yeah like i'm gonna i'm gonna touch a door handle and get it right and like 
I was basically felt like I was bathing in it every time I was at work. And I, you know, I had this complicated rigmarole of like, these are the shoes I wear between the car and the hospital so that I don't wear those shoes in the hospital. And then, you know, I have another pair of shoes that I wear in the hospital and I take off my scrubs before I leave and put on clean scrubs. And, you know, it was just <laughs> that stuff is is the stuff that thankfully we've we've gotten away from. And as a vaccination status, does that still determine whether or not a patient ends up or getting admitted to a hospital? No, um, it's a risk factor for severe illness, right? So uh, being unvaccinated. Um, so it might determine whether you are, you know, sort of per guidelines are a candidate for treatment um, for like, you know, Paxlovid, um, which is still one of the outpatients, the most effective outpatient treatment. Um, so for folks that aren't admitted to the hospital, but no, I mean, the guidelines for admission to the hospital were always clinical. It was always, you know, how do you look? What's your oxygen level? Um, you know, are you critically ill um, versus are you the sort of walking wounded? Are you well? Are you sick, but well enough to go home? And I think we just had to get comfortable with this idea of like, no, no, you're sick. You're just not sick enough. Right. And we'd be like, no, you're probably going to be back in two days. But there's nothing we can do right now. You don't need to be in the hospital right now. And especially when we were in that time where we only really had treatments to use in the hospital. Not that they were all that effective, but we only had treatments to use in the hospital. We just had to say, like, hey, you don't need those yet. So, like, go home, come back if and when you get worse. Um, and a, a good proportion of people came back and we would sort of look at that and be like, yeah, that's that's the course of the disease. And unfortunately, that's what we have to do because we can't have you sitting here and just sort of waiting to get sicker. During the pandemic, we heard a lot about staffing issues um, in hospitals. Has that still been an issue? It has. Um, I think it's not something I'm super well versed in. And I don't want to speculate too much, but um, I think a lot of people retired. A lot of people were like, you know, I'm I'm done. Um, you know, and I have family members that were like, yeah, I'm pretty close to retirement age. And, and you know, I'd rather not like have this be the way I go. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm retired now as of now. So um, we we absolutely lost a lot of staff. Alaska's always been a place that it's hard to hire folks. I mean, we are the cost of getting a doctor or nurse or what have you, a respiratory therapist, for example, to come to Alaska is incredibly high. It's hard to recruit people up here. You know, the cost of living is high. If you're from the lower 48, you're far from your family. Um, it's daunting to people. So it's it's tough to get people here in the best of times. And this has clearly not been the best of times. Um, although I would argue that actually COVID wise, it's really, it's a pretty good place to be. But there's nationally, I mean, there's a huge staffing crisis. Um, and so um, it, we still are using travel nurses and travel respiratory therapists. And that that's hard because again, you know, in terms of sustainability, it's just an expensive thing for the hospital to do. Um, you know, there's some upfront costs with recruiting folks, but um, if you can, get someone up here and get them to sort of be part of the community and get them to stay at your hospital, that's, of course, better for everyone. Um, and and we have not reached a point nationally where anyone is really, I think, happy with their staffing. I remember hearing, uh, in particular, I remember hearing this in the last year, and I'm not entirely sure, but despite that there's been some, I wouldn't say issues, but I guess statements made that they're not entirely sure on the effectiveness of like uh, the first dose of the vaccine, but I guess in a sense, we could say it was successful. Um, but, but having had and 
successful enough rendition of the mRNA vaccine on such a large scale. And I'm pretty sure this was the first time it was used on such a large uh, mass of people. But can we expect more mRNA vaccines in the future? Oh, I think so. And I'm, I'm uh, again, I'll offer the caveat that I'm by no means an expert on this, right? I, my days of studying biochemistry and, and this stuff are, are years behind me now. But um, yeah, it, it, we really got lucky. And I think I, I may have talked to you guys about this, but we sort of, we just happened to be at a time that this technology was ready, was mature, and could be implemented um, on this totally, again, unprecedented scale. Um, that you know we we just um that platform that biotech had had been working on was basically virtually ready to go and could be implemented really quickly um and you know i don't really have questions about the efficacy mm -hmm. um i just you know the data's there um some of the the treatment some of the small molecule therapies right some of the the antivirals that have come out have been more and less effective and more and less effective against specific variants and so on um and there's certainly a lot of you can parse the data a lot of ways and look at the bivalent vaccines and say look bivalent doesn't seem to be actually more effective than the ones before it and like fine okay um i would argue that like you know any booster you take is probably a good booster but mm. um but i mean it, I think the the mortality data has has borne out that like the, the vaccines absolutely were effective, oh, yeah. um, and I think that yeah, absolutely we 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 will be seeing more of them down the line. Do you think COVID has, in a sense, made vaccine hesitancy worse, or has in fact actually improved um, this country's vaccine hesitancy? No, I, I think it's made it more polarized. I mean, I think the people that were going to be comfortable have gotten there sooner, and the people that are going to be uncomfortable have gotten there sooner. I think there's less of a middle, as with so many things around COVID. Um, and I, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we've one of the things we've lost is um, it, it has really accelerated the sort of loss of faith in expertise, right? And now, you know, everyone thinks they know better than the CDC and everyone thinks they know better than Anthony Fauci. And like, look, I don't know better than Anthony Fauci. I, you know, and like, I'm no genius, um, but I've been doing this for a little bit and I did go to medical school and like, I'm like, nah, it's Anthony Fauci could, could be Anthony Fauci. I'm not going to try and know better than him. Um, and, you know, there has sort of been this phenomenon of, of, loss of faith and expertise that probably started with the internet and, and has sort of just grown since then. Right. And I, I gotta say, man, like patients always think I'm going to be really mad that they Googled their symptoms. And I'm like, no, nah, man, it's your health. Like Google your symptoms by all means. But like when it bothers me is when someone Googles their symptoms and then tells me I'm wrong because they Googled their symptoms. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I'm definitely wrong. Sometimes I'm, I'm open to that possibility, but um, I think the idea of like, you know, that sort of quote unquote, I did my research, right? Like I, your 10 minutes of Googling does not beat someone's PhD. It, it just doesn't. And so somehow we've reached a place where a large segment of the population thinks, no, it does. And, you know, well, these America's frontline doctor people put out like 25 pages of research that they pulled together. I didn't read it, but I'm an expert because they put it out and they say this. Well, you know, that, that research was actually uh, hot garbage. Um, and, you know, anyone sort of with any kind of scientific background who read it knew that. And, and yet, 
this sort of again contributed to this this kind of schism right um where like a lot of the middle is just gone so you know in absolute terms do i think it contributed to vaccine hesitancy i don't know i don't think the the mean moved all that much i think people have just moved farther out to the polls yeah um, do, do you think there's a distinction between people's vaccine hesitancy and uh, a doctor's hesitancy oh yeah absolutely uh, <laughs> I, uh, I think prov lost one person due to uh, not wanting to be vaccinated I mean, the line down the hall for those vaccine clinics, right? Like when we like first rolled out the vaccines, I mean, it was like there was jubilation in the streets, you know, um, there was music playing. It was like the most upbeat anyone had felt since COVID arrived here. Um, and I I don't, I think, yeah, we're, we're again, I'm doing a lot of counting on one hand today, but I think you literally could count on one hand the doctors in this town who do not believe in the efficacy of COVID vaccines. And I think honestly, like it's it's an anti-scientific position, um, right? If you look at the data and you say, I don't think this works, yeah, you chose your position before you looked at the data. Um, because if you're actually following what the numbers say, it, it, that's an untenable position. Do you think uh, the distrust of doctors has increased? Yeah, I do, I do. And that's partly that same trend, right, of like, you know, distrust of expertise. But yeah, I think the the sort of, the, the trust there has deteriorated. And that's been going on, the seeds of that have been there for a long time. And I don't know where they, where they first started, right? There's a lot of things that play into it. And it's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think the way our system is structured probably necessarily gave rise to that in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, I do think so. I think they're, you know, there's sort of a lot of fringe beliefs that unfortunately came in a lot from the fringes in terms of like, you know, the doctors are trying to control us and doctors want to believe this. And like, do you, you like doctors love disagreeing with each other, man. It would be real. You could not get the vast majority of doctors in this country to agree on almost anything. Um, this is really a, the rare case where everyone is on the same page. Um, and it's not a, it's not a conspiracy, man. It's just like, I think to anyone who has like gone to medical school, it should be pretty obvious, um, you know, sort of where where the evidence lies and where the benefit for patients lies. And I think the one thing you can still say about the vast majority of doctors is they want their patients to do well and they care about their patients. And that is still why people do this, because honestly, like it is a it's a long road, right? It's it's med school and residency and giving up, you know, the better part of a decade of your life to do this. and. And people don't really do it. I mean, we all, I think, enjoy it, what we do, right? But but I don't think people really do it for self-serving reasons because they want to, like, pull a fast one on patients <laughs> and, and somehow take part in this grand conspiracy orchestrated by the CDC and Big Pharma. Uh, you know, I, I'm... I am not so smart that I can't be manipulated by, by pharma. Like, I don't... I'm sure some people are, but I don't have that degree of confidence in, in how clever I am. Um, I can certainly be duped, but I think, you know, it's the, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. I think you can't fool all the doctors all the time. Um, and, and I think like if you, if we were able to sort of step back rationally and look at it and, and say like, well, where's the conspiracy? There, there's no there there. We'll be right back.
Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. And get this, while we are based in Anchorage, you don't have to be there to work with us. A lot of the work we do is done remotely. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Kendrick's interview with Dr. Danny Minlin. What do you think are some of the long-term psychological effects um, working through the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, bad. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on who you look at, right? I mean, I think um, I have small kids and... You know, I really was troubled that like my kids, you know, were wearing, like had to wear a mask to school and couldn't, you know, in this time of like really intense social and emotional development, couldn't see their peers' faces. And, and I think there was this notion that like everyone who wanted people to wear masks was like, didn't care about that stuff. No, I cared deeply about that stuff. Um, I just also saw what happened when kids got really sick and, you know, I had, I was trying to balance those things. Um, but I worried about what the emotional impact would be for them, you know? And then what was the emotional impact for me of like every time we got out of the car having to be like, all right, masks on, you know, I, I do think it, it was really hard at work to not see people's faces in this time that, and, and look, I mean, I felt lucky to still be working. Right. And be in uh, sort of, you know, with what I do, I was, my job was never in danger. You know, I was never going to get furloughed because of COVID-19. Um, but um, at the same time, it was a really difficult time and not being able to have that level of connection with people, I think, really had an impact. You know, when you look at the rates of depression and anxiety diagnosis um, during the pandemic and it's through the roof. Um, and that's that's not a coincidence. Right. Um, stuff that people were coping with before, um, you know, all those support structures just got trashed, um, not being able to see loved ones. Right. I think the probably the worst time we had was when must have been thanksgiving of 21 um that we were finally like okay we have like our pod you know like a couple of families that we are gonna have thanksgiving with that we had been around you know our kids were in school together and so on and um and someone got covid like the day before thanksgiving and then the other family had to quarantine and it was just like well Thanksgiving's off. This like one bright spot that we had, right? It was like, uh, nope, not happening. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, everyone has those stories that that's not unique to us. And so I think the, the isolation was really hard for people. And I think we were, you know, again, like we were not as isolated as, as a lot of people were because my wife and I were both still working. She's a doctor as well. And, and you know, we had a little kid and, and you sort of... Uh, we really had people that we had those support structures still, um, and it was still challenging. Uh, but on a larger scale, we're we're going to be seeing the repercussions of of this for uh, I don't even know. I mean, it's hard to put a number on, right? Decades. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I was uh, working down in New Mexico for the film industry for a little bit, and that ended like entirely. Um, all production ceased, uh, and pretty much uh, a lot of people lost a lot of jobs, and there was. Mm, nothing we could really do about it you know yeah yeah know that feeling of having the rug pulled out from under you right of all the assumptions that you make about your life that you're gonna have a job tomorrow and that you're gonna be able to pay your rent and buy food like 
all of a sudden, I think that the loss of that feeling of stability is a huge deal, right? The loss of like your sort of like the, the stability of the structures that you built for yourself um, doesn't go away easily. Yeah, I, I think this was the first time people felt like cognitive dissonance on that scale, mm -hmm. you know, of like um, the idea that not that society itself was crumbling, but that society itself could crumble. You yeah, know? yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember really distinctly driving to work um, sort of when we were first, you know, everyone was like locked down and being like, am I going to get like pulled over for driving? Like, I don't know what happens now. We've I've never done this before. Um, like, make sure I have, like, my work ID and my cup holder because I was driving to work. Um, but it was eerie. It really was. Um, and, yeah, absolutely. I think it was the first time a, a lot of us have had to tangle with this notion of, like, oh, maybe things aren't as secure as I had assumed they were. What have we learned from COVID that we can apply how we handle other viruses in the future, like the flu. As a society, virtually nothing. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like it. Man. No, yeah. Um, unfortunately, I, I think, I, joking aside, we have learned a lot of negative lessons, right? A lot of people have come out of this being like, ah, I'm never taking another vaccine. And, you know, um, it, that being said, I mean, you know, we've learned what we can deal with. Um, but on a, on a hospital level and, and on an institutional and individual level medically, we've got a lot of more robust structures in place, right, as a hospital and sort of we, we, we know better how to deal with things now. And if you said to us tomorrow, um, you know, new virus, now we got to do it all over again. I think, number one, a lot of people would, would retire again. <laughs> um, I don't know. I might think about retiring. <laughs> um, but uh, we would sort of be like, okay, we know what to do. Like, we do the masks, and we do the gowns, and we do the temporary walls, and we do the negative pressure rooms. And we, like, we, we know, right? This is not the first time that practices have changed in response to a new virus, right? You look at, like, the, the steps that people take to protect against, like, HIV and hepatitis C um, that didn't exist before those were known, right? Um, and like HIV in particular is within, you know, many people's living memory, um, sort of the, the discovery of the virus and the sort of the, that process and the grudging acceptance of the steps that would have to be taken. Um, we've done it before and, and, you know, I hate to say this, but we'll do it again. Oh, yeah. Um, thinking back to the pre-pandemic times, you know, so long ago, but uh, did you have any plans or personal goals that were thwarted because of the pandemic? And have you been able to pursue those uh, at all now that we're approaching the other side of it? Hmm. Yeah, I was going to become um, an elite world-class bodybuilder and uh, super genius, but uh, <laughs> neither one worked out. So, um, no, I don't know. You know, I, my family is in the lower 48, um, and um, I, I think it was a... It was a big deal for me to not get to see my parents um, and see my brother and his family. I have um, three nieces um, who are all, you know, fairly young. They're all under the age of 14 and, and didn't get to see them. Um, and that's always been something that's really important to both my wife and me to, to you know, have family around and maintain those relationships. And, and so not getting to do that did feel like a big deal. We had, you know. We had rented a house um, that we were going to meet my brother and, and all the kids were going to hang out and do cousin stuff. And that got scrapped. Um, we had a separate plan to meet up with my parents and that got scrapped. Um, but, you know, I, in the grand scheme of what people lost and what people gave up, uh, you know, it's it's just uh, 
I really do feel lucky. Um, I I think both by pure chance uh, in terms of not having lost anyone close to us and, and not having, you know, really had any major health issues um, as a result of COVID, but then also, um, you know, by virtue of, of just what I do and, and still having a job and being able to work, um, I, I do feel like I don't really have any right to complain. Going forward, uh, what should we do now? Should we still be taking precautions and, I don't know, still be wary, I guess, even though we're coming to the end uh, of the pandemic? Um, well, there's this notion in medicine of like universal precautions, right, which are different from being wary. Um, it's like we talk about, you know, we're talking about HIV and bloodborne pathogens. It's like, yeah, you don't like throw dirty needles around, right? <laughs> um, and you like use like sharps containers and you're like careful with these things. Um, they're just steps that you take by default. And it doesn't mean you're, you know, panicky. It's not like the days of when people thought they were going to like, and this is, um, before your time. But people thought they were going to like, this is in the time of payphones. I remember being told that if you stuck your finger in the coin return of a payphone, someone might have left a needle in there with HIV on it. <laughs> that was like a thing when I was growing oh up that God. people thought happened. And uh, maybe it did happen once. I don't know. Um, right. But like that level of like wariness, I, I, you know, no. But I also don't go sticking my hand into Sharps containers <laughs> because it's like, you know, you take sensible universal precautions. Yeah, um, so you can't right. be going around licking door handles. Right, you don't go licking door handles. With, tell that to my four-year-old. But, <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, are we going to be wearing masks in stores, you know, for the foreseeable future? Some people are, and some people should, right? I mean, there are people who, like, can't get vaccinated or don't have a complete response to vaccines or, you know, are, you know, undergoing chemotherapy. Like, th those people, yeah, should still be masking, absolutely, because you got to be sensible, um, and, you know, it turns out common sense ain't as common as we thought, but, um, I think the, the lesson now or the, the sort of state of things now is like, just be sensible, take sensible precautions. You know, I wear a mask at work cause you know, A, I'm required to, but B, like that's where the sick people go. Um, so yeah, I wear a mask. Um, and when I have someone with respiratory complaints, I, I switch to an N95. And thankfully I have N95s now. That That's nice. Um, yeah. But, because um, that's sensible. But I also am not, you know, frantically scrubbing every part of my body the instant I get home. And I'm not, you know, wearing a gown every time I go into a room of a possible COVID patient or, you know, any room at all. Um, which was what we were doing for a while, was anytime anyone had any respiratory complaint, you were putting on a fresh gown and then you were taking it off very carefully in the prescribed manner with gloves and this and that. And, you know, and, and you know, that stuff at this point isn't sensible. So, no, we're not doing it. But um, I think we'd all be a lot better off if we could agree that we're just going to take a breath and be sensible about things. Oh, that's going to be a hard one for a lot of people. Oh, it's never going to happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's not going to happen. But I do think it'd be great. Um, and, you know, all this stuff, right? And, like, I, dude, I am as guilty of this as anyone that, like, things got heated, right? And and it felt personal. And it felt especially personable to, personal to me because, like, I knew that that guy that I saw that was walking around, you know, with, you know, whatever slogan on his shirt, not wearing a mask at Lowe's, could be in the ER next week and I could be the one having to intubate him and having him cough in my face. And so it did feel personal and I definitely took it personally. Um, but I think if we could all just take a step back and agree that like, hey, let's like talk about how things look and let's say, you know what? 
And this is, again, about that sort of the faith and expertise, too, right? Is say, like, okay, the CDC for – and I, I certainly have criticisms of how the CDC did things. But, you know, the CDC's effort to, like, roll out this color coding system I think was an effort to do that. And it was sort of a day late and a dollar short in terms of people losing confidence in them. But, um, yeah, if we could say, like, hey, you know what? Things aren't that bad here currently. Like, we can all relax a little bit. Um, you know, it, it's pie in the sky. It's it's not, things aren't going to work that way. But I do yeah. think, like, again, that polarization is, it's not good for anyone. No, no, it's too much cognitive dissonance. Too much hearing one thing and then having that supposedly disproved the next week and then just constant yeah. back and forth. Yeah, um, you know, it, well, it, yeah, it, it's funny you touch on that, right? Because, like, everyone, there was sort of this theme of, like, well, that's different from what you said last week. And it's like, yeah, man, that's how science works. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. science, it, like, you know, the the data changes, the, your response changes, right? If, like, you know, you think something works and then you try it and the data says it didn't work, you move on to the next thing. You don't spend two years saying ivermectin works when, you know, all the data shows it doesn't. And, you know, flip side, look, there's there's a Cochrane review recently, which is sort of like the gold standard of um, meta-analysis. So basically looking at all of the papers that have been done on masking and not N95s, but on simple surgical masks and homemade masks. And basically they applied rigorous scientific methods to review the data. And, and I say this not having read the review personally, but having, you know, read about it. They didn't find super compelling data that on a population level, masking made a huge difference. Now, I think a lot of the nuance of that is hard to capture, uh, especially in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, yeah, the two whole the whole banks of thought about that are range from breathe on your hand and then breathe on your hand through your shirt. Gigantic difference. Yeah. But also, even Fauci himself was saying like a few years ago, like it's like putting up a a chain link fence for mosquitoes. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I mean, my kids, so we all got COVID once and then my kids got it again and I went camping with them and I wore a mask and I'm not going to plug any particular brand, but I wore <laughs> like a pretty good mask in my truck with them for several hours. Um, and we drove up to Nancy Lake, right? We drove like, you know, an hour and a half each way. Um, and um, I didn't get it. And they were like actively coughing in the truck with me. Um, and like, yeah, I'm pretty confident if I hadn't worn a mask, I would have gotten it. Um, you know, so like it, it, anecdote is not the same as data, right? Um, but again, like, okay, I have to be willing to say like, well, there's this data that seems to like contradict what I believe. I better like take a look at it and be open to it and be like thoughtful about it. Um, and uh you know, I, I do try to do that because, like, that's that's the scientific process is, like, the information available to you changes. You have to be willing to listen to it, you know? And, like, it, you know, you interpret that in light of the other data available and in terms of your own experience and in terms of your own knowledge and so on. Absolutely. Um, but I felt like I had a responsibility to read, you know, I think it was, like, a, that 28-page thing that was like uh, the America's frontline doctors, you know, amalgamation of bad science. Um, but I had to be able to read it and say like, yeah, this is bad science. And I was helped in the process of reading it, unfortunately, by the fact that someone took it upon themselves to leave it at my front door, which I did not <laughs> receive kindly. Um, oh, no. I don't know if you were aware of that particular no, no. dark episode. There is, um, I'll tread lightly. 
But there was a local physician who took it upon themselves to mobilize a lot of people to drop off anti-vax propaganda at doctor's doorsteps. Um, oh, wow. A number of us had signed a letter in the ADN, um, basically sort of promoting common sense measures and, and sort of, you know, expressing the state of sort of where we were in the pandemic. And um, we were targeted. I mean, I, I would absolutely use the word targeted. People were sent to our front doors and, you know, there was this effort. That individual, that doctor who was behind it, basically said, oh, no, no, it's education. I'll call BS on that. You don't, that that was intimidation. That was you, never too intimidating. You don't send information to someone's door. No, and... no. Um, and that to me felt like a real escalation of how things were going. And, and that, again, I mean, that was personal. Um, I, I think a lot of us did not take kindly to that. Um, and, you know, that's, but again, I like, did I have a responsibility to read the data? Yeah. Absolutely, because um, that's what you do, right? And it's it's healthy for you to read things you disagree with and to think about them. Be like, well, why do I disagree with? Yeah, yeah. No, I think any self-respecting person wakes up every single morning and questions themselves, you know? <laughs> I, I would like to think that. I don't think that, <laughs> but I would like to think that. I'd hope so. I speak you pie in the sky. Uh, well, maybe one day. Yeah. yeah. Well, to wrap this all around, do you... Do you think we're more prepared or we will be more prepared for the next pandemic? Yeah, I, I don't use the words the next pandemic around me, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah, it comes back to what we talked about. I mean, I think it's like, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know about emotionally. <laughs> I think emotionally it's going to be a while, right? Um, I think, you know, I, honestly, emotionally, it might be a generation before people are really ready for the next pandemic. I, I That wouldn't surprise me even a little bit. Um, you know, but systemically, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, the next time there's something like this, we'll be able to dust off the old binders and have a plan in place. And you change the word COVID to the word, you know, I don't know, alien invasion, whatever. Oh, yeah. But like, whatever it is. Uh, but yeah, we'll have, um, you know, I, I think we on the one hand, drew down on our, our store of resilience, right? Like we, that account has been a little bit depleted. Yeah. But, and we also have deposited in the preparation account, right? In the, you know, not, I hesitate to say infrastructure because it's not physical infrastructure, but the, you know, the protocols now exist and the everyone's brain has been primed to know how to deal with these things. And so, and, and I'm speaking really on the hospital level. On a societal <laughs> level, God help us, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Well, was there anything you'd like to add? Any more of your experience or any knowledge, common sense you'd like to share with everyone? No, I don't think so, man. I don't, like, <laughs> like I said, I don't think I'm any smarter than the next guy. I just, uh, I wish we could all just, and this is so cliche, right? But I wish we could all just listen to each other and, and listen to each other's expertise. I don't tell my plumber how to do his job. And I sure as hell don't try to install a water heater in my house because when I do it wrong, not if, but when I do it wrong, um, it's going to be a disaster, right? And so, like, I, I think we all, it's not a stay in your lane thing. It's not a, like, well, people are stepping on my turf thing. It's like, hey, man, this is what I do thing. Um, and I would love to get back to the place where people could come to me and have confidence that I want to do what's best for them. And it, it 
it makes me sad. I mean, it really does that people have, a lot of people have, have lost that, right? No longer come to the hospital and have confidence that we have their best interests at heart. It's not everyone. It's not even most people. But there's a, you know, there are a lot of people that no longer have that, like, yes, I'm going to be taken care of. I'm going to be well taken care of. And, you know, and everyone here cares about me and has my best interests at heart. And and it's just, um, you more often have to work now to win people back over. And that's okay. You know, we should all have to work. Um, it's, uh, I don't want to have to, you know, stop having to try. But um, I would love to get to a place where we all have a little more trust in each other again. That was Atme senior producer Kendrick Whiteman speaking with Dr. Danny Minlin, an emergency care physician at Providence Medical Center. You've been listening to a podcast in place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including the Alaska Community Foundation. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of our funders. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can find out more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Maria Koop. Thanks for listening. (coughs) Sorry. Um, Not COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Um,